0: Revelation 17, beginning at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names, of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, or some translations, a mystic. Uh, a name that's mysterious. Um, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So there are two things that we really see here about this uh, woman who's riding the beast in this um, scene is there's going to be... All kinds of uh, religious fornication, spiritual fornication. That would be what the uh, Old Testament calls idolatry. And there's also going to be um, persecution. So these are the two things that really are noted by John about this woman. Um, As we've journeyed through the book of Revelation, we've been introduced to three evil figures. All right, the dragon, who is Satan. Um, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, these three, kind of that unholy trinity of evil. The Antichrist is a key political figure in the last days, and the false prophet is a key religious figure who is going to use the system um, of the beast and is going to use that empire to uh, bring worship to the Antichrist, but also just to have all kinds of idolatry Taking place. Um, and of course, it's a dragon who's given them uh, the power to perform signs and wonders that is going to aid in the world getting caught up in this last day's religious deception. In chapter 17 and 18, they both are dealing with Babylon. Um, in chapter 17, we're going to see the destruction of religious Babylon. In chapter 18, we're going to see the destruction of of commercial or economic Babylon. And so tonight we're just going to deal with the first half of chapter 17 that's uh, speaking about the last day's religion. So a false religious system that is going to uh, just have sway over the world and people are going to be caught up into it. Um, We see that this woman is riding a beast, which is clearly identified with uh, the Antichrist, and she's writing that empire, that system, and she's utilizing it to uh, get this idolatry going. It's clear from other passages in Scripture um, that this fornication is the idolatry. So you could read in Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 and 4. Um, it speaks of Nineveh and her idolatrous fornication. The idea w- why that metaphor? Um, of, of fornication because we are to be true and um, faithful and steadfast in our worship of the Lord, having no other. And yet Nineveh had her, her lovers, if you will. Tyre had her lovers. And sadly, even Jerusalem, Isaiah 1 verse 21, um, speaks of these cities. So Tyre, Nineveh, Jerusalem, cities that had committed spiritual fornication. So that's kind of what's in view as we are talking here, is that spiritual fornication, that imagery that's been well-established throughout Scripture. And she's going to have incredible influence, and there'll be a revival of idolatry in the last days. Now, we read of mystery Babylon. Who is, what city is this? Um, Of course, in the Scriptures, we know of Babylon that was where uh, Nebuchadnezzar ruled from. It's where uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, th- this is where they were from, the exiles from the Babylonian um, uh, captivity and exile took them over into this area. So, so you have this place, Babylon, well-known in Scripture. Um, and many have, down through the ages, one of the earliest commentaries on the book of Revelation, uh, associates Babylon with uh, physical Rome, the Roman Empire. Now, you can think about the influence the Roman Empire was having in the early uh, centuries um, when the church had just been formed. And, and you can understand why they would say, well, yeah, you know, this, this one that has this idolatrous system in place is none other than Rome. And Rome did have an idolatrous system. You had to worship the Caesar, you had to worship. And we already dealt with that a little bit in the book of, of uh, Revelation as we went through the seven churches. Um, and so this has been a, a, a popular, down to this day, many still hold to, many godly Bible-believing uh, uh, followers of the Lord believe that Rome is this mystery Babylon. That is that city. That is going to be the, uh, the ruling place for the Antichrist. And, and I can understand where a lot of those ideas come from. Um, Yet, I don't, I don't think that's what it is. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, um, but as we've talked about a couple of times already, uh, Babylon was uh, told that she was going to be destroyed and that she would never be inhabited again. Um, I think it's Isaiah chapter 13. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 13. So go to the Old Testament. And let's look at Isaiah chapter 13. It may be chapter 14, but uh, let's, just, let's try 13. Chapter 13, and let's pick up at verse 19. It says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't know where Sodom and Gomorrah is today, but they know where Babylon is. As a matter of fact, if you want to go on a tour, you can go on a tour of ancient Babylon. And down through the ages, Babylon was uh, never had the glory that she had during the days of Nebuchadnezzar. But there were Bedouins that would uh, uh, pitch their tent there um, and, and so forth. But the description is she's going to be overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah. Big debate, where's Sodom and Gomorrah today? There are no tours of Sodom and Gomorrah, but there are tours of ancient Babylon. And this is one of the things that Saddam Hussein was doing, um, is that he was rebuilding this. We keep on reading verse 20. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there, but the wild beasts of the desert will lie there. So it goes on just to talk about their destruction. And, and so that level of destruction, drawing upon another historical city, Sodom and Gomorrah, that level of destruction has never been paralleled. So as I read it, this is an unfulfilled prophecy. This is a prophecy that still has to be fulfilled. And uh, so it makes sense from that standpoint uh, to take the mention of Babylon and the influence that she's going to have and the religious influence she's going to have. um, And we'll read in the next coming weeks the economic influence as a literal revitalized city. So you could read passages like Isaiah 13 and 14, uh, Jeremiah 50, 51. You can even check out Zechariah 5. Um, Five through eleven, and they all point to a total destruction, a a destruction that has never been realized. But what's more significant than is it Rome or is it Babylon? Is what this uh, what's taking place in this location, and that is a worldwide religious deception. That's what's going to take place in the end of days. The world is going to be deceived. We uh, talked a lot about that as we were going through uh, Thessalonians and how there's going to be an incredible deception. There'll be lying signs and wonders that are going to do this. Besides the threat of your very life, it's all going to work to cause this to be the religion of the last days. A couple of other things to keep in mind about Babylon, ancient Babylon, literal Babylon is that Babylon was the first place, we read in Scripture, of where an oppressive government was established under a leader by the name of Nimrod. And so the first government structure that we see, and an oppressive oppressive one at that, was under Nimrod. Uh, It's in Babylon, it's at the Tower of Babel, that the first false religion took place. When they were building this tower, what was going on? Did, did God just like not like tall buildings and so he wanted to destroy tall buildings? It's not that he minded tall buildings. It's what the tall building represented. As best as we can determine, for, determine from archaeological evidence and the fact that God had such a hostility towards this Tower of Babel is that it was a, it was a place of worship. It was a temple where idolatry was taking place. And so this is why God And that first organized false religion, he judged it so harshly and he confused the languages. Later on in the history of Babylon, um, there was a a cult religious system um, that has some interesting aspects to it. And so let me just kind of summarize it. I'm not going to go into great detail, but there are two main um, characters and it was uh, Semiramis and Tammuz. Uh, these are names that we can actually, we'll find some references to these even in the scriptures. Um, you go into other cultures and you may find the name Ishtar or Baal. And so these names are different through different cultures. Now, if you want to find a consistency of theology, good luck. These are false religions. They aren't really concerned about being true to the truth. They're, they're about deceiving. But Semiramis and Tammuz. Um, What we learned about them is that uh, Semiramis was a, a virgin and she gave birth to a son named Tammuz. Tammuz was out hunting and he was killed while hunting. And three days later, he had a resurrection. And this turned into a place of worship. Ezekiel 8, 14 says, So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. So this is something that we, again, we find it in Scripture. Tammuz was the one that was supposedly born of a virgin, whose name was Semiramis, was killed in a hunting accident, and had a resurrection. And it was a religious uh Festival that they would keep and they would worship. Um, in Jeremiah seven eighteen, we read the children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. So again, we see this worship. Um, they, this cult religion in Babylon, they had priests that you would go and confess your sins to. Uh, the queen of heaven became the focus of the religion. Jeremiah 44, verse 25, again, makes the same kind of reference to the queen of heaven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, you and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, we will surely keep our vows and we, uh, that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. So what's the point? Ancient Babylon was a place where the first world government was set up. It was a place where the first uh, false religious system was established in literal Babylon. So it's, it's an, again, another reason why I believe that the last prominent city in the world is going to be there in, in Babylon. It'll be the, the the headquarters for the Antichrist, and it'll be the religious seat of the false prophet. And they are going to cause the nations of the world to follow after and to not follow the Lord, but to follow this this, um, idolatrous worship system. I'm not so much suggesting that there's going to be a revitalization of this worship of the Queen of Heaven and Simiramis and Tammuz as much as just a revitalization of false worship. We know what the worship is going to be. It's going to be worship the Antichrist or die. That's the worship that's going to be taking place. Of course, we know what happened at the Tower of Babel. Um, the Lord destroyed that. He um, confused the languages and brought judgment. And there's going to be a judgment that's going to come upon. And this will be very clear. We'll see it in our Chapter 18 study that uh, Babylon, last day's city, is going to be destroyed. So Babylon today is inside um, what modern country? Iraq. Iraq. They, this is where it is. I probably already gave that away when I mentioned Saddam Hussein. So Babylon is in modern-day Iraq. Now, if you try to make sense of um, Babylon, the city there in Iraq, uh, or just Iraq itself, having world dominance and power, you'll lack for any kind of really substance uh, to say, yeah, that's it. that makes sense. But remember how I opened it? Things change fast. Things change fast. And, I, of course, God knows how it's all going to work out. And God knows whether it's going to be the literal city of Babylon or whether it's going to be um, Babylon was a code name for Rome. And there's, there's, you know, there's some good reasons to think that. But going with the idea that it is, ancient Babylon revitalized, modern-day, what we know as modern-day Iraq... Um, coming and being the seat of the Antichrist's power and the seat of religious false worship. How can that possibly happen? Well, it doesn't matter what we project or what we, how it happens. I think it's going to happen. But here's I, what I believe is a really plausible biblical scenario that will take place. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, we read about a last day's battle that is yet to happen. Um, I believe that this is a battle that's going to happen before the Great Tribulation. Some would associate this as being the Battle of Armageddon for another Bible study. We talked about it a few weeks ago. But if if my thinking is right, many others' thinking is right, is that this last day's battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39 happens before the Great Tribulation. You're going to have the nations of Iran— And Russia and Turkey and Libya and Ethiopia and others that are going to come in and they are going to be completely destroyed by God on the mountains of Israel. Obliterated. If you know it, you can look it up on a map right now. You can look again, uh, Persia, Russia, Turkey, Libya, Ethiopia, and many of the other caucus states. If all of these are wiped out militarily and they have no power, then what is, what's going to happen, what, all, what always happens, is another power is going to come up. When there's a void of power, another nation will always rise. So when you go through the list, and it's listed out for you there in Ezekiel 38 and 39, when you look at the list, the one nation that's not listed is the Chaldeans or Iraq. That's not mentioned They're not part of that invading army of the last days. Which, if that is the case, then it would make a really easy case for how they could then rise to a place of prominence and power outside of the dark, demonic, uh, satanic impotence uh, behind making this a a commercial headquarters, outside of making this a place of religious prominence. So, these are the reasons why I think... When we talk about um, mystery Babylon, that we're talking about a revitalized Babylon, um, for these reasons that are mentioned. Uh, certainly nothing to argue about, but something that I think is, is worth considering. Jesus warned us about false Christ. Um, even in First John, First uh, John chapter two, um, we read in verse 18, "Little children. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. One of the dominating features of the Antichrist is to be against Christ. Against Christ, against our Lord and Savior Jesus, and to deceive the world. That's what the last day's capital A Antichrist is going to do. But John says that even now, the spirit of little a Antichrist is already at work. What is that spirit of Antichrist that is already at work in our hour? And that is that same attempt to deceive and undermine and draw people away from a true worship in Jesus Christ. know as we go through this we look at these six verses here's the application (laughs) right I mean the book of Revelation it's difficult to apply so how do I take um, events that have yet to even come and how do we read these study them and apply well again big picture what did we just read we read that there is going to be persecution of, of followers of Jesus Christ and we also read that there's going to be worldwide religious deception and idolatry taking place. So the application for us is that we need to be steadfast. We need to be aware that in this present age that John, again, 1 John 2.18 says the spirit of Antichrist, little a Antichrist, is already at work. We need to make certain that we don't fall into that deception he's going to lead masses of people into this apostasy and as we look at around us there is warning in scripture that the church would not give up the truth that we had not moved from steadfastness that we would not turn away from a sound doctrine first our second timothy chapter four verses three and four says this for the time will come When they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, their own lusts, because they have itching ears, because they want to hear something that pleases them, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. There is a time coming, Paul says, well, there'll be a group of people that say, I don't want to cling to the word of God anymore. I have things I want to do with my life. I have desires, I have pleasures I want to fulfill. So I need to find for myself people that will teach me what I want to hear. And that is where false teachers make their money. They don't make their money upon those that are clinging to the truth. They don't find their popularity among those that are holding steadfastly to the Word of God. They find their place and their position and their prominence by people who want to hear what they have to say. You've heard it said before, if we would not follow or listen to uh, false teachers or send them money, they will go away because that's what they exist for. But, of course, we know that the power behind their their doctrine is, is demonic. And so it's attractive. And it appeals to those uh, fleshly desires that Paul alludes to there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. But what he says is going to happen is they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So how is it that the, the Antichrist is going to Um, undermine um, little A Antichrist. How is it that little Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, undermines the church right now? Okay, it's going to happen in the last days by big Antichrist, capital A Antichrist, right? He's going to deceive the world. We've studied all about that. But right now, how is that taking place? Here it is. Number one, because people move away from the truth. They move away from sound doctrine. And so we find people that begin to say things like, well, I don't really know if I believe that the, the Word of God is inerrant, which means I think that the Bible has errors and mistakes in it, which if you say that, you can't say, at least logically, you don't say that it was given to us by God. If you believe the Word of God was inspired, meaning it came from God, then you, you then come to this very easy c- conclusion well, then it's true, right? If it's from God, then it's true. And so really where the attack begins to happen, it can happen on either front and, and either way, the collapse comes down. Well, if I, well I, I don't believe that um, it's without error. Well, when you do that, then you begin to work backway, backwards and you begin to say, I don't believe that it's, it's inspired. And now you, sound doctrine and truth begins to be done away with. One survey found that over 70% of mainline denomination pastors do not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. 70% of mainline denominations in America do not hold to inerrancy of Scripture. Most did not believe in the miracles of Jesus. That's astounding. This is what Jesus pointed to. He says, go tell John the Baptist that people are receiving their sight and their hearing. You, you can know that I am who I say I am because of the things that I do. These miracles that I perform will tell you that I am doing exactly what the prophet said the Messiah would do when he came. But 70% of mainline denominations, according to this one survey, said they don't believe in the miracles of Jesus. So if they don't believe it and the seminaries are coming from, they don't believe it, then the people that are listening, well, they don't believe it is as well. Actually, sadly, I think that the, the belief in the inerrancy of Scripture is higher among the congregants than it is among the ministers. But that doesn't hold for long. If we don't believe that the Bible that we study, we have on our laps, is trustworthy and accurate, and its message is from God, then why should I follow it? Why should I believe it? And this is the great work of the Antichrist of our age. Because once you have removed a, um, a confidence in the Word of God, and we know nothing about Jesus outside of the Word of God, so we, we don't know that Jesus was was born in Bethlehem outside of the Word of God. We don't know that He rose from the dead outside of the Word of God. This is where we are taught these things. So if we live, uh, you know, in a modern world, the thinking that many have is, well, you know, we live in a modern world and science and um, social problems and all the rest, um, they need to be dealt with something that has got a modern solution. And so we don't want to look to this uh, book the Bible that's been around for a long time to give us guidance and this is where we see people then beginning to turn away from Jesus because if you don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture and you don't believe that it's inspired and you reach the conclusion well everything we know about Jesus is from the Bible now all of a sudden your belief in Jesus becomes undermined so I think this is the second great way in which we see the spirit of Antichrist at work in the world today and even in the church, is that we don't believe that Jesus is the sole means of salvation. Now, where do you learn that? From the inspired, inerrant Word of God. So if that's taken away, then why would I believe and cling to this idea that Jesus is the only way that one can be saved? Pluralism is its the, it's the religion of the day. That pluralism teaches us, um, and it's not true, obviously, but what it teaches us is that every religion offers as, as uh, much uh, truth and validity as the next. And so um, whether you believe in this-ism or that-ism or that-ism, it's all fine. Pluralism. It all works exactly the same. And so that's why the idea of being dogmatic about the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is resisted and it causes so much anger in the world today. Because the philosophy of the world is all roads lead to God. It's all okay. And so this is the thing. Now, for those that say that, um, they don't believe any of them are significant. (laughs) If all of them are significant, then really none of them are significant. And they just see it as, as many just see it as something, well, that's just fine if you want it, and it's fine if you don't want it. It's not significant. Um, a statement that comes from the World Council of Churches, it's called the Bar Statement on Religion. Let me read it to you. It's two paragraphs. As we see the plurality of religious traditions as both the result of the manifold ways in which God has related to peoples and nations, as well as a manifestation of the richness and diversity of humankind. We affirm that God has been present in their seeking and finding, that where the, there is truth and wisdom in their teachings and love and holiness in their living, this, like any wisdom, insight, knowledge, understanding, love, and holiness, that is found among us is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Goes on to say, We also affirm that God is with them as they struggle along with us for the justice and liberation. For justice and liberation. Because we have seen and experienced goodness, truth, and holiness among followers of other paths and ways than that of Jesus Christ, we are forced to confront the total seriousness with total seriousness, the question raised in the Guidelines on Dialogue, it's an article they have, concerning the universal creative and redemptive activity of God towards all humankind and the particular, particular redemptive activity of God in the history of Israel and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves recognizing a need to move beyond a theology which confines salvation to the explicit personal commitment to Jesus Christ. The World Council of Churches. Not that we're really surprised that they said that. They haven't said much that's reasonable in decades. But that's that's what the church is. They they hold the name church, but yet they say it's all open. Pluralism is what rules the day. So when you set aside the Word of God as being inspired, it came from God, therefore it's accurate without error, now Jesus goes. Because everything we know about Jesus is from this book. And that's what takes place. Some other surveys ask these questions. Do you think there is any religion other than your own that offers a true path to God? 75% of everybody that asked said yes. That there is other religious uh, ways to get to God. Um, So pluralism really is the religion of the day. Second question, another question. Are the religions you have in mind only Christian, only non-Christian, or both Christian and non-Christian? Uh, 63% said Christian and non-Christian. The last question. Do you think your religion is the best path to God, or are others equally good? The response was: others are equally good, 82%. So When we talk about the spirit of the Antichrist, John spoke about it being alive and well in our very day. I think this is exactly what he's referring to. This is what's going to happen in the very last days. When the Antichrist comes, he's going to delude people. He's going to take them away from following Jesus Christ. And if you follow Jesus Christ, you're going to be put to death because there's no room for that kind of dogmatism. It's only going to be a worship of him. So I, as we wrap it up here, we're going to close um, our time. A last day's delusion is coming. But we see a last day's delusion right now in this hour that we're living in. And it's going to take a different form. But you can see how the world will be so set up for his coming and for his arrival. Um. It's been our prayer this week, right? And today, many of you um, uh, got the memo. You heard the message last week. You got the email that we were fasting um, and just praying, praying for our country in this time, for the economics, for the health, for our leaders to have wisdom as they make decisions, but especially that we would see a revival that would take place. Um, I would love to see the Lord bring a revival. And here's a revival that needs to happen. We need to rediscover. The church needs to rediscover Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We need to rediscover the word of God, and we need to be faithful in our worship to him. And we need to be done with all the lesser things. I would, and I know you would agree with me, I would be so thrilled that if God would choose at this time to use these circumstances that we're in to turn our country back to himself. I don't know how. I don't really see the path of how that's going to take place right now. But I don't have to see it. Nor do you have to see it. God has to see it. And God in his mercy has to be willing to say, all right, I'm going to now pour out my spirit and I'm going to open eyes and I'm going to revitalize the church I pray one thing that's happening is that we all are learning to have a greater value for one another and for fellowship, for fellowship. That it is something that's meaningful, not just socializing, but gathering together with Jesus at the center of our conversation, at the center of what we're doing. And I pray that that will be something that is revitalized. We are so busy and we're going in so many different directions. And so, and as you are as you praying today and as you know, we are praying, asking the Lord to send a revival, keep that prayer going up. Keep asking the Lord to do this work in our midst. Again, I want to encourage you, if you have any needs, to reach out. If you have any prayer requests, email us. Let us know. Give us a call. And um, we want to be in touch with you. and We want to talk to you guys about what's happening. Um, so, unless things change, we will see you on Sunday. Um, Again, we're going to do the same kind of a a setup. We will not have a uh, service streaming at the um, 8.15 hour a.m. Sunday morning, but we will at 9.45 and then at 11.30. And so um, 9.45 will be live. 11.30 will be a rebroadcast of the 9.45. And um, many of you reached out to us and said, can you please do those Q&A time again? And we will have that live um, at the end of the of the service at 945 so you can send in your questions um so let's go to the lord in prayer let's ask the lord to just hold us steadfast and the truth that we know and we believe lord we are are grateful that you have warned us about the things that are yet to come you tell us in your word that you tell your your friends what's going to happen before it happens and so lord we're your friends And we know that there will be a last day's deception. Jesus, you yourself mentioned that there would be many antichrists and not to be deceived. But Lord, there is an antichrist, a spirit of antichrist that is alive and well. And I pray that we would just cling to your word, that the truth of your word would would hold us and guide us, and that our desires would not be to have other teachers to tell us we have permission to do what we want, but that our desires would be godly desires. To hear what you have to say, like the psalmists who said, that it's good that I've been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Oh Lord, we love your word. We love your truth. We love your son, Jesus. And we pray that you would place within us a spirit of, of um, steadfastness, that we would be tenacious in holding on to your son and to holding on to the truth of scripture. Each of us here, We know somebody that's wandered away. They have been deluded by the spirit of this age, the spirit of Antichrist. And we pray you would draw them back, Lord, that in the beginning of this revival that we're asking, that you would bring everyone that has strayed from you, everyone that has walked away, maybe even those who have denounced you. Lord, we pray you would bring them back. We don't deserve to see a revival, but Lord, we are in desperate need of that mercy. We know your word says that you are our God who delights in mercy. You love to show grace. You are abounding with grace and mercy. And we pray that, Lord, we could realize it as a church, as a nation, as families, that there would be, Lord, your spirit just sweeping through the days in which we live. And we'll see just many people getting their hearts and lives right with you. That we as a church would be effective in doing all that you've called us to do. In the name of Jesus we pray and ask these things. Amen.